0: Welcome to CHQ&A, the podcast of Chautauqua Institution, where we continue conversations that begin on stages and porches across the institution grounds for even deeper insight into the work and thought processes of those who shape the Chautauqua experience. I'm Jordan Steves, recording in the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the Chautauqua Grounds. Our guest this episode is the author, environmentalist, and activist Bill McKibben, whose 1989 book The End of Nature is regarded as the first book for a general audience about climate change. Bill is also a founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement, which has organized 20,000 rallies around the world. A former staff writer for The New Yorker, Bill writes frequently for a variety of publications, including the New York Review of Books, National Geographic, and Rolling Stone. Besides The End of Nature, he is the author of a dozen more books. His latest, published in April, is Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? Bill currently serves as the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College and as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. For his work, he has received a long list of awards and distinctions. Bill joined our John Marino for an in-studio conversation on August 15th shortly after delivering a lecture in the Chautauqua Amphitheater as part of a week-themed Shifting Global Power.
1: Welcome to chq and I'm John Marino, and our guest today is Bill McKibben. He was named one of the planet's 100 most important thinkers, the winner of the Gandhi Prize and Thomas Merton Prize and the John Muir Award, which is the highest honor of the Sierra Club. His book, The End of Nature, looked the natural environment, I think, right between the eyes, and spoke to all of us in such a straightforward way that the reality of climate change and what we were doing to our planet became at once unrefutable and frightening. Bill McKibben, welcome. What a pleasure to be with you, John. Thank you. Let me start with uh, maybe something meaty. Other than the obvious scientific data uh, that supports the need for both individual action and governmental action, when it comes to dealing with our planet. How do we change the minds of climate deniers and and intransigent political leadership?
2: Well, and those are, two, in a way, two different questions. Um, Most climate deniers, there aren't that many of them left in this country, 25% maybe or less of the country. So the first thing to establish is most people know that there's a problem and understand it. And so I don't worry immensely about changing that other 25 percent. They're mostly the way they are for ideological reasons. Um, If you're a firm believer in the idea that government solves all problems, and if government clearly hasn't solved the climate crisis, then your only recourse is to insist that climate isn't a problem, you know, because otherwise it would have been solved. Mm -hmm. so if you're you know, on sort of that level of market free market belief that's hard to shake. Political leaders are different. Um, you know, the Republican Party has become a, a kind of wholly owned subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry, but that's mostly because of the flow of money into it from people like the Koch brothers, our biggest oil and gas barons in the country. And so I think that much of that political leadership will change when it becomes clear that this is losing them votes instead of gaining it. Uh, And I think that that's happening now. Um, It's clear in this political cycle that climate change has become a powerful political tool. And it's clear that, for instance, Donald Trump is very much out of the mainstream. And I think that whoever the Democrat nominee is, she will use it powerfully against him uh, uh, in the fall.
1: Let's hope so. You know, because the chale- challenge, though, is really planetary, it's not just one nation or another nation, the collective agreements, uh, such as we you mentioned, Trump, that he pulled us out of the Paris Accord, do those kinds of collective gr- agreements have enough impact or do you look at it as just a start?
2: And not enough impact. Even if every country had kept the promises they made in the Paris Climate Accord, the temperature would still have gone up six or seven degrees Fahrenheit. However, the hope coming out of Paris was that it would kick off a kind of virtuous cycle, that as countries began the process of putting up renewable energy, they'd discover that it was cheaper and easier than they thought, and the process would accelerate. Trump has very much gotten in the way of that. Uh, Trump and Vladimir Putin and the new president of Brazil, Mr. Bolsonaro, and some other people um, they're doing their best to put speed bumps on that road, and I'm afraid they're being highly successful. And their rationale being what do you think? Their rationale being that they love the fossil fuel industry.
1: Well, you know, it's always uh, there's always an argument on the flip side of the coin that. Um, the economic, negative economic impact of taking these drastic, what they term as drastic, environmental actions uh, to protect the planet and our water and our air and make it safe for our children and that kind of thing, um, that the economics of it far outweighs the danger to the economy, far outweighs the rest of it. But if there's
2: nothing left, how much money does it, what, well, in what's in the, the first Well, in the first place, let's be clear. Um, this is, I mean, The economics of uh, dealing with climate are not ruinous. Um, um, It'll take some money to make this transition to renewable energy, but once we've made it, the sun and wind come for free, so that's a pretty big bonus as opposed to sending a big check off to Saudi Arabia every year. More to the point, the economics of not dealing with climate change are utterly ruinous. Uh, The estimate for what happens, the last economic estimate I read for what happens if you let the temperature go up three degrees Celsius, six or seven degrees Fahrenheit, is that it would cost, uh, the damages would be about $551 trillion, which is more money than there is right now on planet Earth. So uh, in economic terms, we're fools if we don't get to work real fast.
1: How afraid are you that we won't be able to turn the corner?
2: I am I mean, I'm afraid. My most recent book was called Falter. Has the human game begun to play itself out? And I think it's an open question. Um I think that there's still room to hope that if we did everything we could do now we wouldn't stop global warming it's already well underway but we might be able still to limit it to the point where it doesn't cut our civilizations off at the knees but that's very much an open question at this point
1: Well people you know often joke about things like well you know in 20 or 30 years Florida will be underwater mm. we you know the map of the United States will look different because it won't be there mm. how much of that is a reality
2: Well, in 20 or 30 years, forget that. Miami Beach is already underwater whenever there's a high tide. You know, I mean, the ocean has already risen dramatically and people are already having, you can't, it's very hard to get, say, homeowners insurance uh, along the Gulf Coast and the Florida Atlantic Coast, the Carolinas, because insurance companies who are very, Dispassionate in their analysis of Mm -hmm. danger and risk are are, are clear they don't want to be on the hook for what's coming.
1: Anticipating that the upcoming election is going to give us somebody who's a little more progressive in their thought process, what are some of the first steps that you would recommend? And I guess as a part B to that question, you know, as I was reading uh, some biographical information on you, and historically, there's always been some discussion about you joining the cabinet of a progressive. Uh, leadership team in Washington. And I'm wondering whether you feel, this is the second part, it's a long question, I guess, but the second part is whether you feel you are more effective in the role you're playing now as a writer and a lecturer and an educator or...
2: I'm, an, I'm a sort of organizer more than anything and I'm I'm probably more useful working outside the system than in it pushing it to change. I wonder how you felt about that. There's, there's people who are more skilled than I am at policy and m- maneuvering and who are better at going to meetings, and uh, and I have my own set of skills. The next administration, assuming it wants to do anything about climate change, is going to have to move quickly. Um, the... A key first step will be what we're calling keep-it-in-the-ground policies to make it very difficult to continue opening up at least public land mm-hmm. to mining and drilling, and the, happily the president can accomplish that through executive action.
1: Oh, and there was just a move this week to open up some more public exactly. lands for so exactly So I can that.
2: reverse this. Um, um, there are going to have to be dramatic public support for rapid renewables conversion. The best, case that people have made for how to do this yet is this Green New Deal legislation, which would offer people a federal job guarantee if they're willing to help in this transition. That seems to me a very appropriate recapitulation of what the CCC and the Works Projects WPA. Administration mm-hmm. and things did during the original due deal. Right. So I, I've been very glad to see many of the Democratic candidates getting on board with that. And, and how
1: do you feel when it's being attacked as socialism? I mean, are we past? Well, the, uh, I mean,
2: look, it doesn't matter what you do; it always gets attacked as socialism. I mean, Obamacare was socialism. You know, everything socialism. FDR so, too. How I mean, far so back we going I, you to know, go? I, that does not strike me as a very serious attack. How do we get a grassroots
1: movement? I mean, I I watched the unfortunate tragedies that take place because of guns, mm. and you see people mobilize almost mm-hmm. instantly. Maybe it's the immediacy of those negative actions. Well, there's a big grassroots
2: movement now around climate change. Um, It's probably the biggest movement the world's ever seen. It exists across continents. Uh, You know, I mean, among people under the age of 16 alone, there were 1.4 million out of school on a single day in May demanding action on climate. People shut down. uh, Extinction Rebellion shut down the city of London for two weeks. Uh... You know, we've organized just at 350.org 20,000 rallies in 181 countries. There's a big movement. It's growing powerful. It will win. The question is, will it win in time or not? And we don't know the answer to that, um, partly because we don't know how fast we can build it, and partly because we don't know what the physics—you know, we, we, we're going to have to catch a few breaks from physics at some point to begin to catch up with climate change.
1: What, what's the biggest— challenge we have right now. What do you think The biggest
2: is? challenge is the power of the fossil fuel industry. This is the richest industry on earth. It's demonstrated clearly that it's willing to break the planet in order to extend its business model a few more decades. And their enormous power, their control of one of the two political parties in this country is uh, an enormous obstacle to real change.
1: I mean, if they could figure out how to charge you for sunlight... Yep then...
2: Nope. If Exxon owned the sun, we'd probably be fine. Right. Uh, we'd be in, we we'd, be be in trouble in a different way. <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the best things about solar energy is that they don't and and that it will be more localized and democratic and and less a breeder of inequality when we move to renewable energy. Let's hope we can do it quickly enough to catch up with climate change.
1: We know the stories about um, what the oil companies have done to the environment, for example. But historically now, we're, we're really within 100 years of these companies having the level of power and drilling ability and capacity to manage um, natural resources, as they term them, um, the way that they do. So in that 100 years, have we taken away
2: hundreds of thousands of years of the planet's sustainability? Well, we've burned through millions and millions of years tens of millions of years of biology in, in, yeah in the course of a few decades and it's accelerating you know we've produced more co2 since 1990 when scientists started warning us about this than all of time before
1: well okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah let so let me ask you a couple personal things talk a little bit about your family i read i read a little bit about your dad and how much of an influence did his
2: Oh, commitment
1: was, to cause have on well, you. Well, he
2: was, I mean, he was not an activist in any way. He was a journalist and uh, a business right, journalist. Right. It was the business editor of the Boston Globe. But I do remember well him deciding finally that he would, when the uh, uh, Vietnam veterans against the war came to demonstrate on the Green in Lexington where we lived, he went down and joined them and was arrested. And I, I remember that very well. So he was big influence in my mother as well, who's... Uh, strong member of her church and active, you know, active in every kind of cause. Uh, I've been very lucky. My wife is Sue Halpern, the writer, is Mm -hmm. very important and active in all kinds of these fights. And, um, and, and it's, they've all been good examples for me. Do you get worn out? I do sometimes. Um, When I do, often I go look at the bank of pictures that we have at 350. We've done, we think, 20,000 demonstrations and there's pictures of most of them on our Flickr account. And when I look in those and when I reflect that many of the, most of the people in them did nothing to cause the crisis that we're in and yet are willing to fight hard to fix it, um, I find that, I find it easier to just get up and go back to work.
1: Talk a little about 350 and so our listeners uh, have a little bit of the history on it. 350
2: is the most uh, important number in the world. Jim Hansen, the great NASA climatologist in 2008, published a paper saying uh, 350 parts per million CO2 is the most carbon we could safely have in the atmosphere. Sadly, of course, that's a number we're well past now. We're at 410 parts roughly and climbing two or three parts per million a year. That extra CO2 trapping extra heat is the reason the Arctic is melting. It's the reason California is on fire. It's the reason we're in trouble. So that's where we took the name from. When we started it a decade ago, it was myself and seven undergraduates at Middlebury College. And now it's grown into the first big global grassroots climate campaign.
1: How many participants do you have worldwide, would you guess?
2: A lot. <laughs> is, is, that,
1: is it a lot of young people? I mean, are, are they seen it before anybody yes, else? young
2: is? people are definitely in the lead on this question. And I guess that makes sense because they're going to have to live a lot longer with, with it than you left, and I. Sure. Um, on the other hand, I'm very glad to see older people stepping up now. I mean, we're the first generations that are going to leave the world in much worse shape than we found it. And that's a pretty strong indictment. So I think more and more older people are beginning to try and take some serious responsibility here. Do
1: you still hold out optimism?
2: I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic. Just um, realistic? I'm willing to just get up every morning and fight. And that means that I am haven't yet succumbed to despair. I'm still in a place of engagement. I think there's work to be done. Do I think it's all going to come out well? No. I think we're going to see a world of trouble. The question really is whether it's going to be a miserable century or an impossible one. And that's a big difference.
1: And how much time do we have before that distinction is drawn? The
2: Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the scientists who really think about this, gave us the first attempt at a real deadline last fall in their report. They said if, if really massive transformation isn't fully underway by 2030, then our odds of ever reaching the targets we've set in Paris or nil. And, you know, all of us know enough about politics to know that if we want something to happen in 2030, it's 2020 when we have to be making, passing the laws, making mm. the changes. You, you know, you don't spin these, these systems on a dime.
1: No, it's a slow process for sure. Where are we making progress today?
2: So the place we're making progress is with the rapid drop in the price of solar panels and wind turbines. The economics of all this have changed dramatically. And that means that if we wanted to make rapid progress, we could. If we could get the fossil fuel industry the hell out of the way, then we'd have some room for really running at this point.
1: But the only way to really get them out of the way is through governmental action, right? The only Limit way to get them out their of the way,
2: ability to do what they do. That's right. And, and it's also through... Things like divestment that goes after their stock holdings, trying to keep the banks from lending to them, trying to keep the insurance companies from underwriting their projects. There's a lot of points at which to attack them, but they are extraordinarily powerful.
1: Now, I know that there's a lot of places like Harvard and Yale and the University of Buffalo, St. Bonaventure, who have looked at their corpus where they have not invested. And... um, uh, through their foundations, and some of them have made the choice to yeah, disinvest. Yeah, lots
2: have of, lots of divested. I, we're at half the colleges in the UK. Uh, some of the most important schools in the world have divested. It's been very exciting to watch.
1: Does that have a major influence?
2: Well, Shell, in its annual report this year, said divestment had become a material risk to its business. When Peabody Coal filed for bankruptcy, they said divestment was one of the reasons, which made me happy.
1: Great John Prine song about yeah, indeed, there is. <laughs> I want to go back to a question. You said that you thought you'd have more influence on, I mean, maybe you didn't word it this way, but this is what I took from it. You would have more influence on our thinking as people looking for someone to explain to us what we need to understand as non-scientific civilians um, who can play a role in helping better the planet. Uh, that you felt you would have more of an influence on the outside than on the inside of government. Elaborate on that. Just well, I touch. just think
2: there's lots and lots of people who are full of good ideas about policy and know how to make policy and are ready to go. Um, that's not our problem. The problem is the political will to let them do what they need to do. Okay. So the job is to build that political will, and that can only come from the outside.
1: How do I? I still have so much difficulty trying to figure out how we take all these for lack of a better term, red areas of the country who seem to not place value in too much, you know, especially when the president's children are getting him to change even policies on hunting wild animals so that they can go kill a bear someplace if they want to, or an elephant, or whatever the heck it is that they do. Um, and we have so many places that are so entrenched with, and I wouldn't even call it skepticism so much as I would call it a, a level of ignorance. They don't want to know what they don't know.
2: Yeah, I think around these issues, I mean, I've lived my whole life in rural America. Um, I don't think it's impossible. I think um, actually people are increasingly aware of just how screwed up things are. And in lots of the country, people are beginning to realize just what opportunities there are in renewable energy. Go to Iowa and Kansas and talk to people about wind, and they're they see green, you know, of both kinds.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I asked you about the economy. I want to just get back to that for a second because it's it's something that tends to be a continual argument um, about the negative impact of doing anything with the environment would have. But restrictions are almost purposely put on things that would be environmentally friendly solar panels mm. uh, uh, wind uh, turbines things of that nature in order to limit their ability to grow at perhaps the level that the public would like
2: to see them yeah no look if you're a incumbent industry if you're a utility or an oil company you're well aware that your best days are behind you you're playing defense now to try and keep your business model alive another 5 years, 10 years, 15 years. That's understandable, that always happens, you mm-hmm. know. The problem is that if they're able to do it, they'll have taken the planet past a number of tipping points. What can we do? Well, we can that's why we organize. That's why we build movements. History suggests that when people build movements sometimes through sheer numbers and creativity and spirit you can make up for the money that's on the other side. And I mean that's what the civil rights movement was about and the women's rights movement and uh, the abolition movement and the gay rights movement and on, on and on and on. This one's perhaps a little harder in a sense because no one ever made, you know, a trillion dollars hating on gay people or whatever, but people do make a trillion dollars selling each other hydrocarbons. So it, it, but the premise is the same. If you can get enough people engaged in this fight, then you can change the zeitgeist. You can change the sense of what's normal and natural and obvious. And once that's happened, then legislation flows pretty powerfully and pretty quickly.
1: What do you hope for us as a
2: planet? I hope that um, we all, I hope that a lot of people notice that the planet is running a horrible fever and decide that they will act as the antibodies to try and deal with that. That's what movements are in this case. And I don't know how it'll come out because sometimes people get sick and the antibodies kick in and it's not enough and they die anyway, you know. But our hope has got to be that we've gotten there in time and we're going to do enough, quickly enough, to 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 help out the world that we were given.
1: Bill McKibben, thank you very much for your work and for our conversation today.
2: John, back at you on both counts.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks to Bill McKibben for joining us on CHQ&A today and to interviewer, John Marino. Our producer for this episode was Robert Jackson. This particular program may appear in part or in full on the airwaves of our partner stations, WJTM and WRFA in Jamestown, New York. CHQ&A is a product of Chautauqua Institution, recorded and edited in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.